The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let us uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read the whole passage again tonight because we are coming to what ends up being the really the application. Starting at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low. Literally, they fell in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. As we come, our text tonight is, is we're going to focus on verse 12 tonight and then verse 13 next week. Um, read this story today, and I think stories like this are pretty common. Uh, Authorities believe that a man plunged to his death from a cliff and into a river in a Washington state park while he was trying to take a selfie with his girlfriend. The fencing had been removed in 2016. However, it was replaced with new signs warning hikers of the peril of using these trails. The sign said, travel beyond this point is potentially hazardous. Read the warning on the signs. Users assume all risk associated with travel beyond this point. Rescue costs will be at the expense of the injured party. Well, warning signs serve a distinct purpose If you are hiking and you are in a cliffy area and there are warning signs, those warning signs exist for a distinct purpose. If you're driving on a road and you see warning signs, those warning signs exist for a distinct purpose. And it is only really, really proud people who think, that they are exempt from the perils or the hazards being warned of, right? Only a proud person would think, I see that warning sign. It's telling me that there's hazards ahead, but those hazards are only for other people who are not as skilled as me, right? That is, in a sense, sort of just the height of arrogance. Well, in some ways, that is a description of the Corinthian church. A proud, arrogant, self-confident people. And Paul here is giving them a warning. Now, just by way of reminder, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, when Paul talks about baptizing to Moses and so forth, His point is that participation in external privileges do not guarantee grace, all right? That that should be abundantly clear. 
um, as you read those first four verses, there's a word that jumps out at you, and it's all, okay? All of the Israelites participated in this. All of the Israelites were baptized into Moses. All were baptized into the cloud and into the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, right? So all of them participated, but then, of course, the the stinging note is, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. And I point out once again, that's an understatement. He was not well pleased with all of them except two. So participation in external privileges does not guarantee grace. And that is something that needs to be Um, that needs to be preached and proclaimed again and again and again, because even though theologically we may not think that just by mere participation in external privileges, somehow we get grace, there is at least at, 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 um, at the level in which we live where we do kind of make those assumptions. I've got good routines, I've got good habits, I'm a church member, I read my Bible, I do, you know, I do this, I do that, I've been baptized, I take the Lord's Supper, all of that. And Paul's point is simply this, those external privileges do not guarantee grace. Then in 5 through 11, Paul gives us Old Testament warnings, sets forth examples from the Old Testament that warn us what we must not be, right? And so um, this is, this is um, exemplary preaching, preaching examples, but preaching examples in the negative. So instead of be, it's don't be, right? Don't be idolaters. Don't be... Um, uh, grumblers, don't be, right? And so this is the whole point, don't test the Lord, right? And so, in a sense, what Paul is doing, and, and he, and he, he uh, in a sense, bookends this in uh, 6 and 11, where he's, in essence, telling us the Old Testament is given to us to instruct us. It's given to us to correct us and to rebuke us, and Israel, um, in, in, a, in a real sense, of course, Israel is a historical nation, and the Israelites were uh, those that were in right relationship with God or in heaven and so forth, but Paul's point is, is that all of that which took place in the Old Covenant that was recorded for us uh, in former times, all of that was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Right? And so... That scripture is given to us to warn us against certain behaviors because just as Israel foreshadows us, in a sense, and warns us of certain behaviors, the judgments upon Israel are also an example to us. And the consequences that Israel experienced because of her sins are also now examples for us. Those judgments that God brought are instructions upon us. And so there's a real sense, by the way, the the, the very same thing uh, is done in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, where the writer to the Hebrews uses the wilderness generation as a paradigm for the people of God today. And so... The, uh, the concluding applications then for, for this whole section are found in verses 12 and 13. And in verse 12, we have a warning. I'm going to say it's a warning against pride. And then in verse 13, we have a promise of God's faithfulness. Okay? So we now come to these two verses, and um, I'll, I'll probably say this again because I thought it was so Interesting. Gordon Fee makes the comment. He says, out of this whole chapter, the, the, the only thing we remember is verse 13, which is the word of encouragement, right? That's the only thing we remember. It's the most famous verse in the chapter, and everything else is a blur, but we've got that one down, right? And it, the, the point is, is that they go together. 12 and 13 go together. And we have, on the one hand, a warning and then a promise. So 
What is 12 and 13 doing? Well, first of all, 12 and 13 is actually giving us um, the application of 8.1 through 10.11. All right? So when we read these two verses, don't think that this just goes back to the start of chapter 10. This goes back to the start of the whole unit, which is chapter 8, verse 1. All right? Which, of course... Paul's admonition is what, um, listen, love is what edifies. You need to make decisions in which you are giving up your perceived rights for the good of others. And then Paul gives the illustration of himself, of how how he does that. And so the whole thing is uh, revolving around making choices of putting other people first for the sake of love in order not to stumble them. Christians that are motivated by love do not insist on their rights. Okay? That, that, that may be an American ideal, insisting on your rights. It is not a Christian ideal. Okay? And so you are to let those things go. And Paul is, Paul is, um, Paul's worked up with the Corinthians because they not only think they have the right to do what they want to do, but the very thing they think they have the right to do is actually sinful. So when he gets to this application, verses 12 and 13, it's application of the whole, right? The other thing that we see about this is that 12 and 13 are two sides of the same coin of application. Which th- this ends up being really important because the two sides end up being warning and promise. Now, <clears throat> if you've been around a while, um, or you heard the perseverance lectures last week for RBS that I did, you'll know that warning and promise actually serve a function to help the saints persevere. So the reason we say warning and promise are two sides of the same coin of application is because warning and promise actually are designed to work together in harmony with each other, and the warnings in Scripture are not designed to make us um, doubt our salvation. The warnings in Scripture are designed to keep us running the race. And I showed the students last week this... um, the slides from Tom Schreiner and Ardell Kennedy's book. Some of you remember those, those slides. I'll have to show them to you again sometime soon where it's um, viewing the, the warnings and admonitions, right? And so you've got the runner and you have the track. And, and in the first instance, the track is salvation. And he's running and he's running towards the prize, which is eternal life. And the first way that the warnings and admonitions are, are seen are threats of losing your salvation. So he's running, and he hears the, the warnings, and the warnings indicate to him, um, I may lose my salvation, right? And that, of course, is not what the Bible teaches. There are other views that, in a sense, sort of take the, the defang the warnings. So another one would be that the guy's running, and the, um, the warnings are just warnings of loss of reward, and that's all. Well, the problem is, is that as you go through all the warning passages, not the least, which is 10, 12, the idea of just simply losing reward actually is not nearly a strong enough uh, concept to fit with the actual threat, Okay. If I say, if you drink that, you're going to die, and what I mean is you're just going to have a minor case of diarrhea, that is not really uh, consistent. Okay. The other is that the warnings are just sort of hypothetical. This, was, this is what would happen if you could fall away. And, of course, that ends up uh, completely removing the strength of the threats and the warnings. To just say, well, this, is, this might hypothetically happen if you could, but you can't, so don't worry about it. The minute that you say don't worry about it, a threat is no longer a threat. A warning is no longer a warning, right? The warnings exist 
to keep you running. The warnings, just like so, so the, the, those poor people that fell off the cliff, that, that warning at the trail was designed to do what? To keep them safe. If they would have heeded the warning, guess what? They'd have been safe. When you're driving over Highway 50 and you see the, the, the signs, now this isn't a good example because I never follow them, but anyway, when it says like 45, they have the warning sign, 45, the idea is it's dangerous to go faster than 45. And when you see the symbol of the truck like tipping over, you know, you go, okay, well, I get the point. And what's the goal of the warning sign? The goal is to get me there safely. That's what the goal is. In Scripture, the warnings, the admonitions, the threats are designed to get you there safely. And so if you believe in Christ and you truly trust Christ, and you're one of Christ's sheep, you'll give heed to the warning. All right? Okay? So, the, uh, the Puritans used to talk like this. So the warnings and the promises are, um, are guardrails. They didn't use the word guardrails. That's my imagery. Guardrails to keep you from falling off either side of the road. So on the one hand, the threats or the warnings are designed to keep you from presumption. And on the other hand, the promises are designed to keep you from despair. Right? So the the warnings and the promises work in harmony with each other. Okay? So how do I know when, um, when I need a warning? Well, if I'm being proud, if I'm being presumptuous. If I'm not dealing with my sin, I need a warning. How do I know when I need a promise? If I'm feeling despair, if I, if I am having a sense of hopelessness and uh, helplessness, I need God's promises. The promises and threats work together to keep you on track and running the race. Okay? None of us have the right to say, I like the promises. The threats, though, you can have them. By the way, the promises are everybody's favorite passages. Okay? That's why we remember 10.13 and not 10.12. The promises, everybody loves those. You know, um, my sheep hear my voice. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. We're like, amen. I love it. I love it. Nothing will separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen. Amen. One, the one who began a good work and you will complete it till the day of Christ. Hallelujah. He who endures to the end is the one who shall be saved. Well, that's got to mean something different than what it seems to mean, right? So you see the way that the warnings and the threats work together. They work together because there are times where you need one or you need the other. What Paul does is he brings brings two of them together right now, and here we have this warning, and the warning is to keep me watchful. So Paul says in verse 12, therefore, but it's stronger than just therefore. This isn't a normal therefore. This is a really, really strong inferential conjunction. So you could say, you could even translate it like this, for this reason. In other words, what Paul's doing is, in light of everything that he's just said, especially the warnings in 10, 1 through 11, he's now drawing a clear inference. He's making application. So in light of these warnings, in light of the fact that external privileges don't guarantee grace, and in light of these warnings of certain sins that are not repented of will lead to God's judgment, in light of that, for this reason, then he says, the one who, or the one thinking, he stands. The one thinking, he stands. So Paul has in mind here uh, a person who is right now thinking, I stand. Paul uses a word for think here 
to consider as probable or to believe or suppose or to consider. I would argue that going back to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, that really Paul is talking here not about somebody that has true knowledge that they stand, but they have a presumed knowledge that they stand. So they're presuming that they stand. And what does it mean to stand? Well, the idea, of course, is being steadfast and strong and sure. And they could be thinking that they stand because they were baptized or because they take the Lord's Supper or going back to chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, maybe they think they stand because they have really good theology. You think anybody might conclude that? I've got really good doctrine. Of course I'm going to stand. By the way, let's just face it, people within sort of, you know, like our circles really do kind of conclude, I've got really good theology. I mean, my theology is way better than, you know, than the, that poor Arminian and, and it is. Okay, it is. My theology is way better than that poor dispensational guy. Okay, well, it is. But your theology is not what makes you stand. At the end of the day, just believing, believing right and true things is not what actually makes you stand. And... Although it's absolutely vital for true godliness to be rooted and grounded in the truth, having the truth does not secure true godliness. And the proof is actually 2,000 years of church history and 24 years of Grace Community Church history. Okay? People that are really sound, know lots of stuff, know lots of catechism questions and answers, and know their confession, and know scripture, and, and uh, they've not only read Grudem, they've read Turretin. In fact, they don't even mess with the one volume abridged of Bovink, they go for all four volumes. I mean, they can eat 16 ounces to the pound. And never choke. Paul says, therefore, the one who thinks he stands, maybe, maybe they think they stand, they're holding fast, they're secure in the faith, just simply because however you boil it down, it's just self-confidence. Self-confidence in their own strength. Now, by the way, that's not very good theology, but I will tell you, a person can have really good theology and yet at the level where they live not connect the dots and think that at the end of the day it is their own strength, their own confidence. Of course I'm going to stand. Now, I would, I would argue that what is in view here where he says, so then the one thinking he stands, that this is not really standing firm in the faith in the way that Paul encourages that in other places. But rather, this is, a, this is a presumptuous standing in the faith. This is a presumptuous standing that is rooted in a self-confidence, and that self-confidence is, is just absolute pride. Anthony Thistleton says of this presumption, he says, it is deceptive, theoretical, and illusory. A number of years ago, I, um, somebody told me about a book by this, I think she's British, Cordelia Fine, and she's not a believer, and the name of the book is A Mind of Its Own, How Your Brain Distorts and Deceives. Interesting. Not a believer, and I loved this quote. She says, your unscrupulous brain is entirely undeserving of your confidence. It has some shifty habits 
that leave the truth distorted and disguised. Your brain is vainglorious. It's emotional and immoral. It deludes you. It is pig-headed, secretive, and weak-willed. Oh, and it's also a bigot. Yes, thanks to the masquerading of an unworthy brain with a mind of its own, much of what you think you know is not quite as it seems. Wow. I know. I mean, you know, it sounds like not the same language, but it sounds like something you'd read from, you know, John Owen or something, right? Don't trust your brain. Your brain distorts, deceives, it puffs yourself up, it makes you look good, and and it's always telling you stuff that really is not a very accurate presentation of reality. So when Paul says to the one, so the one thinking he stands, this is a warning. It's a warning not to be presumptuous. It's a warning not to believe your own headlines it's a warning not to drink your own bath water. Okay? Think about that one for a minute. It is a warning for us to be suspicious of ourselves. Does not the Bible continually encourage us to be suspicious of ourselves? What's the very first step you should go through when you're about to confront somebody? Take the log out of your own eye, the beam, the telephone pole, the railroad tie. Take it out of your own eye before you can do what? Take the speck out of the brother's eye. Now, we're really good at seeing specks. Oh, my goodness. You've got a speck in your eye. I can help you with that. And then, of course, because I'm deceived about myself, I don't realize that I have a gigantic telephone pole in my eye. And then as I try to help this poor brother get the speck out of his eye, all I'm doing is bludgeoning him to death with the telephone pole. All right? That all by itself should should make me realize, you know what? Things may not be the way that I think they are. My perception of myself may not be what it really is, what I really am. And so Paul says to this person who is being presumptuous, I stand, right? I'm strong. He says that person should take heed lest he fall. And of course, when Paul says take heed, he's using um, a really common word here. Um, Some of you... Um, might know that the, one of the words, there's a lot of words for to see in the New Testament. Blepo is one of those. And oftentimes, the word blepo is used not in terms of actual physical seeing, but it's used metaphorically as a warning word. Okay. So the idea would be pay close attention. In fact, Bauer and Gingrich says, Sometimes he has the idea of you need to be ready to learn about something that is needed or is hazardous. A willingness to learn, a willingness to pay attention, a willingness to watch, a willingness to beware. By the way, Jesus uses this word combined with another word, um, and and sometimes we uh, translate it, be on the alert or watch out. Paul uses it repeatedly. Sometimes we translate it, beware. The writer to the Hebrews uses it um, in, uh, in 3.12 and 12.25. Watch out. The, the idea is see to it. Okay? Watch out. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief which falls away from the living God. And so Paul uses this word. He's already used it, by the way, in 3.10. So the person building is to watch out how he builds, 3.10, right? Because it's only that which is a gold, silver, precious stone that's going to last, right? He also says in 8.9, watch out, 
Be careful, pay attention to, so that your liberty is not a stumbling block for a brother for whom Christ died. So this is a warning word. One of the things that, um, that makes me realize that time is passing and I'm getting older is that all of my illustrations are only relevant to a particular generation. I hear, I'll do a test here. I hear the imperative, third-person imperative for watch out. And you know what I think? I think, warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson, danger. You've heard of that? Okay, good. All right. Yeah, so that's, that's what I think. Warning, danger, pay attention, wake up. Now, Paul ends up saying this not simply as, as some sort of scare tactic, you know, like, um, boy, you know, what, what am I going to do? You know, it's kind of like with, with kids. Sometimes you, um, sometimes you uh, exaggerate the potential punishment for a crime with your children. Okay, I suppose I'm the only one that's ever done this. If you don't stop that, I'm going to pull your arm off and beat you with it. Okay. Now, I've, I never, all of my kids all have two arms to this day, okay? So sometimes you would just sort of exaggerate the, the warning, right, or exaggerate the threat, and you do it to, to elicit the kind of response that you want, right? Um, don't do that. If you keep doing that, your eyes are going to stay that way or something, right? I mean, we have all of these parental myths that I know some of you parents are so sanctified, you would never, ever say those kinds of things to your children. I said them all the time. <laughs> I have to say that the effectiveness of any given threat uh, was only minimally effective, right? Okay, and sometimes not effective at all. But here's, here's the warning, right? Take heed, watch out, danger, pay attention, lest he fall. Now, you know, we read this. This is one of the reasons why 10.12 doesn't, doesn't strike us with the uh, kind of force that other warning passages do. It's because we read fall, so the one who thinks he stands needs to take heed lest he fall, and we hear fall and we think of, well, stumble a little bit, or maybe fall into a little sin. That is not what Paul's getting at. You can't read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and come away with the idea that Paul is just thinking, you better be careful because if you think you stand, you might stumble into sin a little bit. When he says, lest they fall, that is in the context of the way that he's already used it in 10.5, where New American Standard doesn't say fall, but this is the word, the same word. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low. They fell in the wilderness. Well, you have the same word that's used again in verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, 23,000 fell in one day. So the falling through sin that is pictured here is not just some sort of, um, you know, I committed, uh, you know, I got angry when I was driving and, you know, somebody from California cut me off. Sorry. Okay, so it's not that. It's in the sense of, of falling as in falling away. It's falling as in 927 being a castaway or being disqualified. Now, remember, and I, I, I probably need to qualify this, um, I see this as the function of a warning passage. Okay? I don't think for a second that a real believer can lose their salvation. But I do think real believers give heed to the warning passages, and those that aren't real believers don't give heed to the warning passages. And so when Paul says, lest he fall, um, Dave Garland says, this word recalls the wretched demise 
of the desert generation that serves as an enduring warning to the people of God in every age. As, 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 as I look back, and you can do this too, you can think of, you can think of people that you've known that were um, professors of Christianity and may have known lots of scripture and known a lot of truths, and then they fall away. They no longer follow Jesus. One of the common denominators was a pride and a self-confidence. They took pride in how much they knew and took pride in how much they prayed and took pride in how much they read and how much they memorized. There was an element of self-confidence. One of the things, one of the things, and and of course, you, you can probably think of exceptions, but one of the common denominators of those that end up quitting the race is in essence, a lack of humility before the Lord. A lack of honesty with their own sin. A continual habit of minimizing their sin. Do you think there's any connection between pride and minimizing your sin? It most definitely is. Humility owns up to, its, to, to one's sin in its fullness. Doesn't try to minimize, doesn't try to um, redefine. Pride makes me want to minimize the depth of my sin. Pride makes me want to want to redefine the terms of my sin because some terms make my sin seem uglier than I'm comfortable with. So if I can, I can use different terms and redefine it, then I feel a little bit better about that. And maybe I can even tell you about that. Paul says the person is presumptuous and thinks that he stands, stands there in self-confidence and his own strength, better be careful, better watch out, better pay close attention, lest he fall. In other words, the person who is, who is being presumptuous is doing nothing other than setting themselves up to fall. It's a dangerous position. It's a really dangerous position. So when we think about this this warning, let me just draw a few conclusions here. First, this is a strong warning. And strong warnings are for all of God's people, not just some. If you look at a strong warning and you kind of think, well, that doesn't apply to me. You're like the hiker that goes, I don't need to pay attention to that sign. That sign is for novices. God's warnings are for all of God's people. And it doesn't even matter how long you've walked with God. God's warnings, you don't, it's not like you get, you know, hey, I'm 50 now. I'm exempt from half of the warnings. Doesn't work that way. How long do the warnings apply? What's the shelf life of the warning? As long as you're breathing. A long walk with God doesn't guarantee anything about tomorrow. You understand that? 
You, you understand what I'm saying, right? That there, I would say most definitely there is a guarantee for tomorrow, but it is not the length of your walk. It's not the depth of your walk. Nobody can, says, can say, I went to seminary. Of course I'm going to make it tomorrow. I'm a deacon. Of course I'm going to make it tomorrow. And so the warnings are for all of God's people. The second thing that this, that this passage should do for us is underscore, emphasize for us that there is a real danger in being careless. The careless person says, that sign's not for me. The careless person doesn't deal with the real issues of life. The careless person is always presumptuous. There's also a real danger in being overconfident. Do you, do you think... By the way, so... Having a sense of assurance is not necessarily the same thing as having assurance. People can have incredible assurance and it not be real assurance. In other words... Mere confidence is not the same thing as faith. So the danger is in being overconfident. So I would say that the Corinthians were full of assurance, but not the kind of sound or healthy assurance that is real assurance. Calvin puts it like this. This is so, so good. He says, they had assurance because they were satisfied with themselves under the influence of a silly conceit. Being, being overly confident is not the same thing as a full assurance of faith. And this passage reminds us, here are these Corinthians, and they think they stand. David Garland, again, he makes this comment, he says, the assurance that Paul attacks, so listen to this, the assurance that Paul attacks is not the assurance of faith that rests on the promises of God, but the assurance that has its roots in nonchalance. Sort of a easy come, easy go attitude. It is the assurance of a swollen headed person who is guilty of a misplaced confidence in their own knowledge. So, out of curiosity, I went to a uh, the Yosemite. Uh, search and rescue website. Because I figure if there's a lot of people that don't pay attention to the signs, it's when they're in Yosemite. So there's a section, and it gives a list of everything from not paying attention to the bear warnings. I mean, just write down the list. There's all different kinds. And at the bottom it says, at the, this blog, it says, lessons learned. Okay? It says, quote, Danger signs are not there to ruin our fun. They are often posted in places with a large accumulation of past accidents. The boulder fields at Bridal Vale and Lower Yosemite Falls have a history of many injuries, sometimes life-altering. Although others were engaging in the same activity, it's not good judgment to perceive popularity as an endorsement for your safety. Oh, let me read that again. Although others were engaging in the same activity, in other words, 
surrounded by other stupid people, it is not good judgment to perceive popularity as an endorsement for your safety. It is better to understand this as evidence that human behavior is contagious. And so the warnings are designed to keep us from presumption. The warnings are designed to keep us from pride. The warnings are designed to keep us both humble and dependent. So how do we specifically take heed lest we fall? Well, let me just give you just a few quick things. It should be obvious to us. Number one, know and watch over your own heart. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the streams, issues of life. That's that's an admonition. By the way, John Flavel has an entire book, the Puritan John Flavel, on Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart. The idea is, is that I need to know it the best I can, and I need to watch over it. So if I go back to the Cordelia Fine thing, my brain is, is... is inherently, because of the fall, inherently self-deceptive. I have a tendency within myself to justify myself, right? Have you ever noticed that? Or are you just the most objectively neutral, honest person that's ever walked on the planet? No, we have, we have something up here that wants to justify. So if, uh, so we'll do, uh, we'll do husbands and wives. So husband and wife are, you know, that kind of thing, right? So, of course, you guys probably don't do that either, right? And so you're button heads, you're button heads, and what does the husband think? If the wife would just think straight, i.e., like me, we wouldn't be having this conflict, right? So at the end of the day, whose fault is it, Mr. Husband? It's hers. The wife then says, if he would just... What? If he would just listen... He wants to fix the problem before he even knows what the problem is. If the Neanderthal would just simply just stop talking, if he would just stop grunting for two minutes, we could make some progress. So the wife looks at it and says, you know what? It's your fault. You know, we're wired this way. We're not wired to say, What am I doing wrong here? That is not our first impulse. First impulse is, I can tell you what she's doing wrong here. And I'd be happy to set her straight if she'd only listen. And vice versa. So when I say, know and watch over your own heart, that means, first of all, just kind of accept the fact that My heart is deceitful. And I've got the tendency to be a blame shifter. And I've got the tendency to be an excuse maker. And I've got the tendency to actually make sure that everything in in the universe is somebody else's fault. That then means if I am to know and watch over my heart, that means, number two, that I'm distrustful of myself. You trust in your own heart? Proverbs 28, 26 says, the fool trusts in his own heart. I don't know, whenever I hear that verse, I always think of Tom Sawyer. Aunt Polly says, you've got a good heart, Tom. Follow your heart. That's like the worst advice ever, okay? 
Just the worst advice ever. It would be like, Tom, your heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. You don't even know the depth of it. So in order for me to actually be the kind of person that's being watchful and taking heed to this warning, I need, first of all, to say, Lord, help me to watch over my own heart. Help me to guard my own heart. Help me to the best of my ability to know my heart and help me not to trust myself or to trust my own heart. It doesn't work to say, well, I know that I'm right because I just usually am. My track record of rightness means that right now this argument's over. That's not a humble person. It's just not. By the way, men and women are are equal opportunity offenders. Okay? You understand that? So we distrust ourselves, and then what that then means is that we need to be humble and dependent. So that that's the that's the opposite. If 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 I am going to trust myself, I will not be humble and dependent. If I distrust myself, guess what? I'm going to be a humble and a dependent person. So think about how proud Peter was when Jesus confronted him the night in which he was betrayed. Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter looks around and he says, you know what? These guys might deny you, not me. Not me. I mean, Lord, you know how loyal I am. You know what a stalwart I am. I mean, didn't you just say like, hey, rock. I mean, that strength, stability, awesomeness. That's what I am. And so here's Peter, absolutely full of pride when Jesus confronts him. And then what happens is Peter was humbled, but he was humbled by his dismal failure. The reality is, is that you don't need to have a dismal failure to humble you. All you need to to be, to be humble, is void of self-confidence. Seeing our own weakness, seeing our own vulnerabilities, having an accurate assessment of ourselves. And then if that was the case, then we would be humble and then utterly dependent. Could you imagine, I mean, not that we can rewrite history, let alone scripture, but could you imagine Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're going to betray me tonight. Peter would have, could have said, oh, Lord. Please, help me. Strengthen me. Lord, I don't want to do that. But if I'm really honest, I'm a coward. Help me. All the difference in the world. Our self-confidence and our pride is the exact opposite of what we need which is humility and dependence. And so, I see myself as weak. I see myself in need of grace. How often? Every single solitary second of the day. That's how much and how often we need grace. Every single solitary second. If you don't see that, you don't even know yourself as you ought yet. Right? And then when, when we realize I'm weak, Lord, I, 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 I need your grace, then you know, you, you know what prayer is? Prayer is, in a sense, us just exhaling dependence on God. So prayer is, I'm just exhaling my dependence on God.
Finally, I need to stay focused on Christ and and the means of grace. Self-sufficiency is a killer. If I stay focused on Christ, Christ is my all-sufficient Savior. If I stand, I'm going to stand in Him. I'm going to stand through Him. I'm going to stand on Him. I'm going to stand with Him. Take all the prepositions. Plug them in. I am... I liked Rich Mullins when he was, I liked his music a lot. And he had a song, went like this. He says, so if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. Every day, I'm desperate. I look at this, I'm like, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be a presumptuous person. I don't want to stand and think that I'm standing. I want to use the means of grace. I don't want to neglect them. I need Christ. I need Christ in his word. I need Christ in the preaching. I need Christ in the supper. I need Christ in the fellowship. I can't afford to be alone. After I had brain surgery, I couldn't go for uh, walks by myself for like two or three weeks because... My balance wasn't very good, and, and I got dizzy real easily, and I was, and I was really weak. And so I was, I was a fall risk. And the last thing you want to do is fall. And so I couldn't trust myself to walk by myself. I needed someone to walk with me. Plus, I didn't want Ariel chewing me out if she found out I went for a walk by myself. But I needed somebody to walk with me for my own good, for my own safety. I needed somebody to walk with me that would keep me honest, make sure I didn't go farther than I was supposed to or faster than I was supposed to. Somebody just to walk with me. When you and I look at a warning like this, we need to cry out to God for help and for grace and that God would expunge the pride and the self-sufficiency of our own hearts. And that we would say, not just, Lord, please walk with me. But that in humility, we would say, Lord, please carry me. I'm weak. really weak. Please carry me. That's how you respond to the warnings. And in so doing, God is glorified. The one who has the strength gets the glory. The one who carries the load gets the glory. God doesn't get any glory when we are presumptuous and say, Look at me. I am so strong. If Christians were classified according to military uh, groupings, I would be a Marine. No. I'd be the wounded in desperate need of being carried. And so if you think you stand, Take heed, lest you fall. Let's pray.
Father, our flesh does not like to be humbled. And we do not like to be reminded of how weak we are. Or how self-deceptive we are. But Father, we pray that tonight we would realize that embracing those things is a magnificent confession of how strong you are and how much we need you. And so, Father, we pray for your help tonight. We pray that we wouldn't fall, but that we would cling to you in the absolute confidence that you're the one who holds us fast. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.